Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Hello and welcome to episode number 29 of the New School Video Podcast. My name is Candace Carlton and I'm the head of our advisor, Growth Solutions. I'm joined as always by my fabulous co-host and the CEO of Ficom Partners, Meg Carpenter. When we started this podcast, it was really about exploring the concepts of authenticity and vulnerability as key ingredients to creating connections. So I think that we know that that's true in our personal lives and in person, but really we wanted to explore how it shows up in a digital first way, how it shows up in creating a business in alignment with your why, and really thinking about how to use it in marketing to create greater connections and business results. We've had advisors, we've had CEOs, we've even had the founders of Wistia, which is a video first platform, and all of them have expressed and told us about their journey into this idea of really showing up authentically, the vulnerability that comes with it, but also the success and the expansion that they've had with finding their own way. In this episode, we have a really interesting guest because Matt Brinker used to be the head of acquisitions at United Capital, and he was responsible, I think he said, for over 90 deals. So I think he has seen it all. And in a landscape where acquisition is really the hot topic and the main activity right now, he represents a unique perspective as he's now the managing partner of Merchant. So Merchant actually takes a minority investment in financial firms, and he really believes that they are investing in independence and that your capital partner determines your destination. So really unique perspective. I think what's really cool about Matt and why I like spending time with him is he is obviously very, very smart, intellectually curious. And not only that, he has a high demonstration of EQ and emotional vulnerability. So when you think about someone heading acquisitions, I don't know that you think about those two elements going together, the smarts, and the EQ, but if you really dig deep into it, it makes sense, right? If you're trying to assess whether or not people would be a good fit, that would make sense. So in this episode, he talks about what he's seeing across the mergers and acquisitions landscape, what they're doing at Merchant, and he's kind of been incognito for a while. So it's nice to hear him up being visible and like finding out what's going on. And he also talks about what I think is really interesting. They're an investor in Zoe Financial and how he sees that as creating the blueprint for RAAs of the future in digital marketing. Really interesting episode. Let's get started. Now, this is a very special episode because we have one of our friends from United Capital, Matt Brinker, who is now the managing partner of Merchant, also a fellow Southern Californian. Hi, Matt. So excited to have you here. Hello, Candice. Hello, Megan. How are you all? 
<laughs> so Matt, we wanted to have you on the new school for a couple of reasons, but primarily because of the stuff that you're, the work that you're doing at Merchants. So at United Capital, you were head of uh, acquisitions. How many transactions did you head there? Uh, we did 90 transactions over right. about 12 years. 90 transactions. So you've seen it all. And we'll get a little bit more into like in your experience, what makes a good deal, but you've made a shift from the aggregator business to merchant where you're a minority investment in all types of financial firms. Why did you make that shift given where the M&A market is right now? Sure. Um, so what we're doing at Merchant, like you said, is that we're making um, minority non-control investments in wealth management firms and financial services companies that support the, the ecosystem. And, you know, I think the, the time that I, like I was there for a long, I did that job for a, a long time, right? 15 years um, focused on the uh, aggregator, the, you know, shave your head, put on the fatigues and salute the, you know, United Capital flag. And, um, you know, candidly, I'm just way more interested in investing in independence. And, you know, I think the sort of behavioral changes that I saw with uh, advisors when they went from being an independent RIA entrepreneur, you know, running their firm, controlling um, a lot of the aspects of what they do on a day in day out basis and, really turning them effectively into employees, there was just a massive sort of behavior change in how they you know, showed up every day. And so um, I really just wasn't all that interested in, in being in that side of the business anymore. And you know, I, I am completely convinced and totally passionate about the independent RIA fiduciary um, side of the business where it's just um, it, when it's applied right, it's absolutely just magic for clients. And so uh, the independent side of the, the, of the industry just continues to um, be incredibly attractive from a human side, just in terms of you know, um, how, what the, how the clients are treated um, and what happens on the independent side. And then, you know, honestly, the commercial side too is incredibly attractive. You know, it just, there's, um, uh, there's, uh, you know, and I kind of think about like, you know, advisors have really sort of three choices when thinking about transacting or creating liquidity and, you know, it's sell to an aggregator, do nothing, which is obviously a choice. And then think about a, um, a strategic partner or somebody who can be a minority investor in their business to create some semblance of liquidity and serve as a strategic partner. When you kind of think about the whole industry, whether there's, it's hard to count, but you know, whether there's 15,000 or 18,000 wealth management firms, whether RIA or hybrid, and there's, you know, depending on which research report you read in terms of the number of transactions that happen, whether it's 250 a year, whether it's 500 a year, honestly, it's, it's rounding error you know, relative to the amount of wealth management firms that are out there, right? If it's one and a half percent transact every year, and then there's another three to 4,000 new registrants sort of backfilling, I, I think the industry as a whole has signaled being completely independent and a, 
autonomous is the preferred choice. I mean, our media covers transactions. Like that's, there's some, there's something sexy about transactions and uh, people are always interested in, you know, M&A and, and, and whatnot. But if you pay more attention to what's not happening and what's not happening is firms aren't selling, right? They're thinking about building long, sustainable businesses. I don't know why you wouldn't when you think about just where we are. And I probably said this for the, for 15 years now, we're in the sort of the first inning of the evolution of wealth management. Anyway, a long-winded answer to your question, but I just am way more interested in working with entrepreneurs and working with founders and helping them sort of think through their strategic objectives and lining up with them and helping them think through, you know, how do you, how do you grow? How do you grow responsibly? How do you develop your team? How do you manage the equity stack? How do you incent the next generation of advisors and your team members think like entrepreneurs and business owners? Um, it's just way more interesting, candidly. So there's so many interesting nuggets in what you just shared with us, Matt, and there's like a lot that I want to dive into. One thing that really struck me in sharing your story is that I think that most, if not all, of the aggregators in our space would claim to be fully independent and would say that they're, you know, powering independence, supporting independence, all the things. So I'd love to hear sort of your take on that because I thought that that was really interesting. And I'd also love to just hear a little bit more when you talk about behavior change, specifically, you know, if we're speaking about aggregators, like, do you think that those advisory firm owners that were making the decision to partner with an aggregator, you know, they decided this is what's best for my business and for me, for my team and for my clients. Like, do you think that they knew what that, like what behavioral changes they were going to experience? Was it all positive? Sure. Was it negative? A little bit of both? Yeah. And I, I want to make sure that I don't sort of conflate, you know, my, how I wanted to spend my personal time and sort of, the, you know, my next phase of my career with, how I think about the aggregator model, you know, I think that they serve an absolute critical function for our space. I, I, as I think about sort of these United Capital 2.0s that are, you know, they're buying 100% of the businesses, they're bringing high degrees of operational scale, consistent client experience, you know, interesting investment solutions. So I think they do really incredible things for a segment of the industry that wants to toss the white flag and say, I, I don't want to be in compliance. I don't want to be in portfolio construction. I need some help with the consistent client experience. I don't know how to access estate and tax planning resources on my own. And this sort of fundamental belief of I'm willing to trade my independence and autonomy for bolting onto an aggregator where there's less wiggle room in how you manage the business, how you manage your team, and how you manage your day. That's awesome. That's great. That's But it seems to be for a smaller subset of the market. Yeah, I, look, I mean, I think the, the aggregators are independent today. But again, it, let's be mindful of, and this is just only a sample set of one, right? When our old firm was bought by a bank, that was, there was really no, in our early business plan, 
It, it wasn't let's build a nationally branded wealth management firm that provides operational scale to help advisors spend more time do what they're excellent at and then sell it to a bank. That wasn't that was nowhere in the in the conversation. And so it's going to be super interesting to see what happens to this next iteration of roll-up firms that are they are private equity backed. They're backed by very serious, professional, no joke private equity firms that are incredible at generating rate of return for their clients of where that next trade is for them. Because there is a coming trade. And whether that is being publicly traded, an IPO, but nobody has proven how to do that successfully. And there's eventually, there is a, um, there's not a continuum of private equity firms that are ready to throw their, you know, there's a, there's always a, a last stop on the private equity train. And so there's got to be a way to create liquidity. Now, if these 2.0 aggregators, next stop is JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley or Ameriprise, then I mean, you know, look, United Capital is a, is a sample set of one. It might be an outlier. But if there's a continuum of these firms flipping into banks, I, I, it's not a great, honestly, it's not a great look. Right? I mean, we're just, as an industry, we need to be able to stand up on our own two feet. We need to continue to build really stout, nationally branded wealth management firms that can create liquidity for shareholders, can recycle their equity into next generation. I hope these firms don't, you know, end up at JP Morgan, right? Because it's just, it's just, um, it just sort of speaks to the lack of sustainability and, and maturity. And I'm editorializing, but it's just my, my personal view on how I think about the importance of, you know, our firms and our industry being independent and and standing on their own two feet. You know, Matt, I was just thinking about, I know we've had many conversations about this, but seeing a lot of these smaller, disruptive, progressive, digital first, very human companies, like to your point, like being brought up and on our new school podcast, we had um, staying out of the PE race with Keel Point. So an RA that's made the conscious decision not to take on any private equity and how they're building for the future and a business versus a transaction. So as you think about that frame of reference and having all the experience, how does your capital partner impact your future destination? A lot. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that you said it, uh, you're either building a business or you're building a transaction. Right? And when you're building a transaction, it's you behave a very specific way, right? The type of capital that you put on your balance sheet, the people that are in the cap stack, uh, you know, really sort of smashing a bunch of assets onto a platform, hoping that somebody pays you more for it than what you paid for the underlying parts versus building a business. And um, usually the duration of your capital informs your strategy. And, you know, if you've got sort of short shot clock money, you know, people that want to turn the capital out in three to four years, three to five years, you're building a transaction, right? Because you don't invest in, ta in talent. You don't develop your team. You don't think about, you know, longer term strategy aspects like building a digital marketing strategy and consistent client experience. You know, on the other side of the table, the way that, you know, again, the two important variables for 
for me, in terms of how I wanted to deploy capital in this space was being a non-control investor in these businesses. I really wanted the founders and the CEOs uh, and the entrepreneurs to maintain a lion's share of the equity because I believe in incentives and behavior and alignment is tied to the economic outcome. Uh, the other component is for merchant duration, like the length of the capital that we're using to deploy into the space, right? Like, so we've got long duration capital and I won't use the word permanent because I do not fundamentally understand because someone needs to explain to me what permanent capital is. That sounds like a real long time. Um, I, I think of it like long duration, you know, meaning, 15 plus years. And when you can invest in long in, with the sense of longer horizons, thinking in increments of five, seven, 10 years, you behave differently. Right. You differently. I don't know if I answered your question, but um, that's, that's, that's how I think about the impact of duration and, and, and the type of capital that you have on your balance sheet informs what's going to happen when the shot clock expires. Yes, and there's reasons, significant reasons that people, businesses, executives, CEOs, owners go the route, right, of giving up majority interests. And I think that I'd love to hear your perspective on why, like what you think some of those motivators are. And I know that we've discussed sort of what's happening with the race to arms with big banks and specifically yeah. when you're thinking about the hundreds of millions of dollars that are being invested in digital marketing and disruption and innovation. And then you think about even the largest businesses in our space within the independent wealth management ecosystem and, and, and sort of like how to compete. So I would have, it's a huge assumption that I'm making, although we have worked with many executives who have gone that route and sort of facilitated those deals and helped with the marketing yep. and peer plans around it. So I've seen behind the scenes of a lot of it, but there, there are reasons to sort of go that route. And I think a lot of it is staying competitive and staying relevant. So sure. how do you think about that from, from your perspective? Look, I think it's incredibly critical that we as a, a channel can attempt to keep up with all of the innovation and the dollars being spent by our competitors. I think about Morgan Stanley and what they're spending on data management and AI. I think about JP Morgan. Like all these firms are spending an incredible amount of money on digital marketing, empowering the advisor, giving them more bandwidth and time to spend doing what they do, which is, you know, talk to clients and sell proprietary product. And I think it's incredible and important for us on the independent space and some of the bigger firms. And I, and I look at this as a function of experience. You don't have to be massive to get digital marketing right. I think that's a misnomer. Uh, and I can point to, you know, five, six, seven of our partner firms that aren't 25 billion in AUM and they've dialed in digital and marketing and they are growing organically um, and they've figured it out and they're doing, you know, they're more focused on organic growth than inorganic growth. So it's not a size thing. It's an intent. It's a focus. Um, it's a commitment to doing digital and marketing in, a, in an intelligent, scalable way. I think quite candidly, the bigger you are uh, on the independent side, you know, it's incredibly 
hard to market in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, the same way that you're going to market in Miami, Florida. It's a different client, it's a different segment. You're going to say different things. So size doesn't really give you really any sort of competitive advantage. Mm, I love all of that. We're actually hearing that, Matt, um, from some of the larger firms that client acquisition costs on the digital side are going up and yeah. conversion rates are going down. Yeah. And we are so aligned with everything that you just shared because to your point about, you know, Sheboygan versus Miami, like you have to, and I've, I'd love to meet those five to seven firms on that merchant has invested in that have mastered digital, because obviously this is what we do every day. And we get super excited yeah. to highlight those types of advisors that are doing sure. really cool things. But, you know, from our perspective, it's really about how are you making human to human connection through your digital marketing in a super scalable way. And that's, hard to do when you've got a message that has to play across the country, like it becomes quite difficult. Um, And so I think like the points that you're making around, it's not about size, it's about Mm -hmm. intent and commitment and discipline and how you approach content and connection that really make it make or breaks your digital marketing efforts. I always think about when I'm coaching advisors, I always think about like their brand, which is a lot of what we work on. And you talk about it as top down growth. You have to live in a good house. That's what I always say to advisors. When you're looking for new clients, they're going to check, first of all, do you live in a good house, right? So that's your overall brand architecture. But also what we're seeing is, which is kind of exciting, is these larger firms enabling their advisors to market in their region. So using marketing and having that human to human because as a prospect you're going to be like are you in a good house or are you going to steal my money right you know and then the second thing you're looking for which we know to be true is am i going to enjoy working with this person do they align with my worldview are they the person that i want to call in the middle of the night when i have like a big life event happen yeah I think you had shared something kind of interesting. So you've got Zoe on, you're an investor in Zoe. Can you tell everyone what that is and how you had said to them, you said you feel like they're a blueprint for the future of retail digital marketing for advisors? Yeah, uh, sure. So um, I'm an investor and advisor to Zoe Financial. And what Zoe Financial does is that um, through digital outreach, they bridge uh, retail clients that are looking for um, wealth management relationships on the independent fiduciary side. They've mastered it, right? So they have figured out how to, through digital outreach, connect with uh, individuals through, you know, whether it's Facebook ads, SEO, and the like. Uh, And they've curated a, a highly selective network of wealth management firms that meet their standards in terms of fiduciary, wealth management centric. And so they become, they really the, the matchmaker between the you know, individual client looking for a wealth management firm. And they've taken, you know, not only just the ability to source the underlying um, clients, but, you know, facilitate matchmaking as well in terms of, you know, understanding the client, what their needs are, their demographic, their psychographic, and then using a bit of an algorithm to match them up with the correct firm in their network 
that has those sort of not too dissimilar um, to what I think a dating service would would do, right? From a matching perspective. So, um, yeah, I think. Look, I mean, they have stepped into um, what most wealth management firms should be doing. They're doing it on behalf of the RIA community. And I think if you go and look at the firms in the merchant ecosystem uh, that are doing it properly, your customers that are doing it properly, it's a lot of the same attributes. They're getting an incredible amount of attraction. And there's some other firms that are doing it as well. But again, it's just, um, it, it speaks to the expertise, the commitment, the capital, um, and the willingness to spend real time and money and energy on having a digital marketing and branding strategy. So how can we help coach advisory firm owners that aren't there yet, but we know that they need to be and we want them to be because it betters our industry and it serves more people. When you're in a room and they can stand on their own, like you were saying, like we need to stand on our own. Yes. And sustain. Yeah. Right. So if you're coaching Matt, an advisor who hasn't maybe They've thought about it, but like they don't really know how to go and they're a little bit nervous and they're like, oh, it's never really worked for me before. And you right. know, how do you coach someone? How do you help them change their behavior so that they can understand what's really necessary to help their business succeed well into the future in an independent way? Well, so we have we've made 60 investments to date. Six zero. Six zero. Wow. It's zero. It's about 140 billion of assets under management. I would say of those 60, 60 of them would throw their hands up and say, we absolutely need to want to figure out uh, a consistent, predictable way of, of marketing and branding digitally to drive organic leads through our door. I don't know how to answer that question for 60 firms and several hundred advisors. Um, I think what we need to do is have you come to our next national event. <laughs> we'll be happy to be there. <laughs> 30 minutes, 45 minutes of podium time and you convince them that you guys can do it. Cause I know you can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I was, um, I know that you've done so much work, like you you're in the room, right. With the executives and in your former life, it was on the acquisition aggregator side. And now, and I love hearing you talk about why you're so passionate to be at Merchant and to be making these investments. You're supporting entrepreneurs. I'm an entrepreneur. I know how lonely it can be. And I know how like fulfilling it can be when you find people within the community, whether it's other entrepreneurs um, yeah. or and partners like you who genuinely believe in the business and in what the entrepreneur is building. And so I have to imagine you're having a lot of conversations with those entrepreneurs around like, I believe in you and I want you to carry this forward. And so just more so like, what, what are some of those conversations like? Like, do you feel like you're often having to convince people not to go, you know, like you mentioned the three paths, right? Like yeah. the aggregator, the do nothing, take a minority investment. Like, do you feel like you're doing a lot of um, life coaching? Like, what are those conversations like when someone feels like, ah, I don't really know where to go from here? Sure. Um, it's a really good question. And I, and I think you're right that independence has its cost, right? I, I, you know, I refer to it as independence island, 
you know, where you're sort of, you know, isolated. That's why I think these, these conferences work so well. And you've got thousands of advisors, you know, coming to Schwab Impact and these Fidelity events and the like, because they want, you know, they are, they are isolated. One thing that just blew me away, we, we, like I said, we had, we got all of our partners together last spring in Sarasota, Florida. They don't have any economic interest in each other. Right. They're, they're, they're independent. The only common fiber is that they have a minority investment from merchant. What was incredible was the level of mindshare um, collaboration. Some of our partners are actually merging together, right? Mm-hmm. Some people are sharing, right? Like integrating resources. We have a family office here um, in Newport Beach that works with ultra, ultra high net worth individuals. Several of our partner firms have ultra high net worth clients. They don't have family offices, family office solutions. And so they're collaborating together. So that part of it just absolutely blew me away that there would be a willingness to have the level of collaboration that we're seeing. And so it's Meg, it speaks to your point, you know, the cost of being independent, right? It is, it, it can be expensive when you sort of are sitting within your own four walls and it's, you know, it comes to sort of, echo chamber of, you know, I'm sure you've had the late nights, like, oh my gosh, am I doing the right thing? Am I, you know, am I going to make payroll and, and the like? And um, so that, that level of collaboration has been absolutely magic. To answer your question more specifically, you know, and it sort of harks back to when I, um, in my, at our old firm, people would come through the door and, and we would engage, I'd have conversations with them. And it was just very clear that, this firm wasn't going to sell their business, right? They just, you know, it's a very bifurcated part. It's just, a, it's very clear. It's zeros and ones. That's like, do I sell my business or go independent uh, or stay independent? Like someone who is selling their business is, is, is a bit of a capitulation, quite candidly, right? Like it is a, like I said, a bit of a white flag. So the firms that we're, we're partnering with, they understand where we live in, in terms of just, being a strategic partner that um, invests in this space. Um, and so when we're engaged with firms, they understand that we very proudly hold ourselves out as being, a, you know, our, the whole bench of merchant people. We're operators. We have operated RIAs and big institutions, right? From from the likes of Goldman Sachs all the way down to starting a you know building a firm like United Capital. So we are operators who happen to be investors, not investors who pretend to be operators. Matt, so I know you are, as you've articulated throughout this conversation, how passionate you about are about the independent space. Me too. And I know from coaching advisors and executives across the country that everyone has some kind of money story because we're not here by coincidence. And I think George Kinder does just such a beautiful job in the programs that he offers and helping advisors get in touch with that. And we do as well with our clients. But when you think about your life, why do you have a specific money story or experience that has led you to be here? Everybody has a degree of money trauma. And it certainly not all of the behavioral um, research and, and science, particularly around finance and, and, and things that happen in our lives, obviously inform how we deal with money and or lack of money or 
money in our relationships. And so I grew up in what I would sort of consider, you know, upper, upper middle class. And, you know, for a good chunk of my life, trips to Hawaii and, you know, nice cars and, you know, the picket fence and the, you know, dog, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, everything on the surface was, uh, I'll never forget. So we would go into, you know, electronic store and, you know, sir, what would, what's your price point here? And, you know, it was money is no object. Well, money is no object until it becomes a massive object. Mm. And when I was a junior uh, in high school playing basketball outside with my buddies, three flatbed tow trucks pulled up to the house, guy in a suit, um, puts foreclosure stickers on the cars, puts a foreclosure sticker on the house. Um, and I went from you know upper middle class to um, effectively broke uh, as a family in overnight. And mm. you know those type of things have... You can imagine the, the, the implications in terms of how you know I, I think about money, um, how I think about saving, how I think about spending, how it informs my relationship with Lauren, how it impacts how I'm raising my children. I think of wealth management as a way of you know helping individuals you know work through those those aspects and having somebody ride shotgun with you. Um, so you're not sort of left to your own devices and your own sort of backstory because those things can break. I mean, they can literally break a marriage. They can literally break your financial plan. They can break your financial um, future. And it's, it can be very dangerous, right? I think of when this industry is applied right, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty fantastic. And then, you know, obviously like the, the balance sheet side of the house, like the application of estate and tax planning, um, access to really interesting uh, alternative uh, investment solutions, which I think is something that we haven't spent a ton of time talking about. But I'm starting to see in our space on the independent side an ability to access really interesting uh, alternative investments, private equity, venture, real estate, direct, that was kind of left to the, fun the big financial services companies. And um, I'm seeing that becoming a little bit more normalized uh, and allowing you know ultra high net worth clients access interesting investments and um, with great due diligence and low cost structures the whole client experience right to you know working through uh, making you have somebody providing you guidance and not breaking your financial plan because of old money behavior to um, interesting investment solutions and good guidance around state and tax planning it's just you know it's it's worth its weight in gold. Thank you so much for coming on The New School. This has been such a valuable conversation. We close out every episode by asking two questions. But the first is, what does The New School mean to you? The New School means to me is um, amplifying the human advisor, which is at the end of the day, the human advisor continues to win. I mean, at every turn, the demise of the human advisor has been wrong and we continue to win. We will win. And I think of the new school as, um, and FICOM as a, as a organization and a team that's really focused on amplifying the human advisor and empowering them to tell more people about the things that they do. Did I have that right? Yeah, you got it. You got it. And where can people find you and merchant? You can go to our website, um, merchant.im, 
uh, .com, uh, or just call me. Okay, perfect. So Matt, thank you so much um, for sharing that story. I think at the end there, getting to know sort of your personal money story for me really brought everything together. And I think that it's really awesome to see somebody like you who is a leader in this space who it feels to me like you've really found alignment for yourself, sort of in aligning your vision with your values and taking your money story and translating it into how you can help advisory firm owners to sort of provide that service that you believe to be so valuable. And it feels like you've also found a lot of fulfillment moving into this role at Merchant where you can actually feel as though you're really like empowering entrepreneurs to be the best versions of themselves. So thank you for sharing all of that with us. It's going to be such a powerful story for our listeners and viewers to participate in. Thank you. I appreciate those kind words and um, I appreciate you taking the time and it's been great chatting with you guys. Our pleasure.